I came across an article recently. Let me pull it up here. Garth Brooks concert registers as an earthquake. On April 30th, Garth Brooks, and if anybody, some people I'm sure know him. He's a pretty well-known country singer. He is, goes to uh, the city of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he has this concert at LSU's Tiger Stadium. This is a big stadium, much like the one here at UGA. This stadium holds 102,000 people, and he fills the stadium, so it is, it is packed to capacity. And Garth Brooks has a song known as Colin Baton Rouge, one of his most well-known songs. And the fact that he is actually in Baton Rouge singing this song really excited the people at this concert. And so when he began playing this song, just such a thunderous applause and cheer and singing and stomping and, and whatever else they do at a country concert, all of that begins to erupt and literally this concert and, and the noise and the shaking and, and everything that went into that concert literally registered on the seismograph machine at LSU. It registered on the Richter scale as an earthquake. That's a pretty powerful concert. But it made me think of what we're going to read this morning, a text where we have a similar event that takes place. Of course, not a Garth Brooks concert, but an event where such a thunderous cry from the people arises that the Bible says literally the earth began to shake. I want to preach a sermon this morning entitled Thunderstruck. 1 Samuel chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 we'll be reading this morning. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistine, Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who, killing, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook, now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. 
I want to look firstly at Israel's defeat. Verse 1 says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now this was a common experience, a very common reality for the children of Israel as they're there in the promised land. When they were called to go there, their command from God was to wipe out all the enemies that they found there. Unfortunately, they did not fully comply with God's commandment and they left many of those enemies there. For that reason, they had to face many of those enemies repeatedly as they would come and encroach upon the land of Israel and attack them and assault them. Other enemies that arose were just simply over time. Others just, you know, communities of people, kingdoms grew up around them and and they began to also attack the uh, children of Israel. So Israel was faced with this difficulty and challenge of always having enemies nearby. And it is important for you and I to understand this morning that the Old Testament history of the children of Israel, part of the reason why we have that in Scripture is to present a physical picture of spiritual truth for you and I as Christians. In 1 John 4, 3 and 4 says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And so there, is, there are spiritual forces that are at work in the world that would seek to oppose the will of God whether that is to oppose the will of God individually in your life or against your family or against churches or against cities, against nations, there are spiritual forces at work that the Bible says are the spirit of the Antichrist, influences and spirits that will work against the will of God. And this is a constant reality. It is a constant opposition that you and I face every day as Christians, and what is so amazing to me is how many people treat their Christianity as if it's just an accessory to their life. You know, you go and you buy a car and you make choices. Do I want, you know, do I want the fancy touchscreen? Do I want power seats? Do I want heated seats? Do I want air conditioned seats? Do I want a third row of seats? You have all these different accessories and choices that you make. These are add-ons to the vehicle. And people treat Christianity as if that's just an add-on to their life. As if it's just something that's meant to make their life just a little bit better. They can just be a little bit more blessed. Just have a little bit more peace. But how many know the reality is we're at war. We are facing a battle. There is a very real enemy that is at work against your soul. Heaven and hell are at stake. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Christianity is not an accessory to your life. It's supposed to be your whole life. It's supposed to be what you give yourself completely to, not an add-on. And in our text, Israel is facing this same reality, but in a physical sense. The enemies of God have come out against them. The enemies of God, the Philistines, are ready to throw down with the children of Israel. Verse 1 says, the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Now that town or that region, Aphek, what that literally means is stronghold or fortress. That tells us that they were in a position that was well fortified, a position that they had held for some time. 
They had had plenty of time to develop reinforcements, develop walls, develop a system and strategies to protect themselves and to hold that territory. It would be very difficult to defeat and overthrow them. Verse 9, it tells us that the Philistines, they say, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become the servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. And what that reveals to us is that the children of Israel, the Hebrews, they had been slaves, they had been servants, they had been held in bondage to the Philistines for many years. They were oppressed and had been unable to do anything about it. And the children of Israel had finally reached a point where they were looking for deliverance. They were looking for a way out. They were were willing to fight against these Philistines in hopes of gaining freedom, in hopes of throwing off the oppression of these Philistines that had been encamped against them. Came across an article, and actually I have a video of this. So this, this horse that I read about named Bold and Bossy, it's a racehorse, had the same desire for freedom, the same desire to break free from oppression. Go ahead and play that, Cole. This next story is completely bonkers. A Kentucky racehorse is recovering after a very eventful weekend. Two-year-old Bold and Bossy threw her jockey just before her race on Saturday. She then bolted from the track and ran six miles up the highway, crossing the state line into Indiana. She then robbed a bank. No, I'm joking. Police officers and trainers corralled the horse and placed her into a barn to settle down. And then get this, Sunday morning, the barn caught fire. Oh, Bolden no. Bossy suffered some burns on her neck, but her owner says she's expected to make a full recovery. She's I, having a right. tough time. That's good. Bolden Bossy, well, that's a good name for that horse with that spirit. But Bolden Bossy said, I ain't looking for a life of running in circles. I want to be free. I want to run on the highway. And Bolden Bossy went for it. And as the children of Israel are looking at their situation and considering the oppression and the bondage that they had been suffering under, they are ready to go to war. They are ready to fight the Philistines. But unfortunately, the outcome of this battle is a disaster. Verse 2 says, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. So they come up against this Philistine army. They go in with high hopes. They go in with desire and expectation of freedom. They're thinking, we are the children of Israel. We're fighting against these pagans that don't know the true God. We're fighting the enemies of God. Surely God is going to give us victory. Surely God is going to set us free from this oppression. But things didn't turn out the way that they anticipated. And when they found themselves defeated, 4,000 soldiers being slain, they run away and they begin to ask the obvious question, why? Verse 3, when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And this is a good question to be asking. How many know? It is a good question for them. And on the surface, it makes sense for them to wonder, why in the world did we lose? Why should God not allow us to have victory over His enemies? We are God's chosen people. 
This is supposed to be the promised land. We are the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why wouldn't God give us victory? But how many know there are different reasons and motivations when people ask the question, why? Sometimes people ask with a very genuine motivation. They genuinely want to know, wow, something happened that I don't understand. Why did it happen? And there is a genuine desire to know the cause and the effect so that I can do something to fix that, so that that doesn't happen again. Or if it's something good, why? I want to know why that happened so I can make it happen again. But not everyone who asks the question why really wants to know. If you've ever raised or dealt with teenagers, you know they're great at this. They'll ask a question. They'll ask you for advice. They'll ask you about some situation. And you give them the good, parental, godly, wise, righteous advice. And then they go and do something completely different. Like, why, what did you even ask me for? Why did you bother to ask if you're not even going to listen to what I said? Often people ask why just because they want to complain and mumble about something that they don't like or they want to justify themselves and say, well, this bad thing happened, but let me, it's not my fault. Why would this happen? I, I did X, Y, and Z. They're not actually looking for a solution. They just want to complain a bit. And in our text, unfortunately, the children of Israel, they're asking the question why, but with the wrong motivation. Look at verse 3 again. It says, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So they begin to ask the question, why? But notice, did they even wait on God to answer? They said, God, why? I know, let's take the ark. They did not even allow God an opportunity to answer their question. They just simply barged ahead with their own idea. They barged ahead with what they thought was going to be a solution to this problem. And how many know when you ask the question why, it's usually good to wait till you get an answer? And unfortunately, many times people don't really want an answer. Because they already know what they want to do. You ever been there? You're dealing with something or you're trying to make a decision about something. But you don't want to go ask pastor about it. You don't want to ask anyone else in the church because you already know what they're going to say. And it doesn't line up with what you've got planned, figured out. I was thinking about many years ago. You know, I loved golf. I golfed a lot before I got saved. I got saved. God dealt with me to put my clubs away, so I did. Quit playing. But then eventually, you know, God said, you can play. It's fun. Have fun with it. But, you know, I started to get caught up in it again, and I started to practice a lot. And I came up with this plan. You know what? I think I'm going to be on the PGA. I mean, literally, I was thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to really try for this. And so I'm practicing, and, you know, my, Corey's like, why don't you talk to pastor about this? Oh, no, I don't. No, this has got to be God. Why, would, why else would God give me this talent? Unless he wants me to be in the PGA. And so I fought for a while, and I said, I don't want to ask pastor. I knew what pastor was going to say. But finally, I gave in, and I talked to pastor, and, you know, he had mercy. <laughs> he said, hmm. Well, you know, maybe if, you know, you're at the range, and you hit a shot, and Tiger Woods happens to be walking by, and Tiger Woods says, man, that's a great shot. You should be in the PGA. 
then maybe you should go for it. But otherwise, I don't think that's God. <laughs> I never saw a tiger at the driving range. If the children of Israel would have genuinely asked God why and waited for God to give them an answer, he would have pointed them back to something that he had already been speaking to them. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, verse 29 and 30, a prophet comes and begins to speak to Eli, the high priest. And he says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me? to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. See, God had already been speaking to them about this issue. He had already been dealing with them about the issue of their sin, specifically Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were involved in sin. They were blaspheming God. They were dishonoring God. And that sin was being passed down and influencing the entire nation. The issue was spiritual. God couldn't help them and God couldn't bless them because they were rejecting him. They were choosing to disobey him and live in sin. And had they waited on God to answer, he would have shown them. And they could have dealt with it. But the children of Israel, unfortunately, didn't really care what God had to say. They came to their own conclusion. They developed their own strategy right away. They said, God, why? Oh, I know. Let's take the ark into battle with us. And they thought they had a plan that was going to work, that was going to bring victory for them. I want to look secondly at trusting in the ark. Verse 3, the children of Israel said, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is not just a Hollywood prop from Indiana Jones. How many saw that? Indiana Jones, yeah. Great scene. And before that, I, I had no idea what the Ark of the Covenant was. What? That's a pretty cool-looking box, though. But that actually has its roots in the Bible, that it really is something that God had ordained and God had given very specific instruction about in Exodus 25. Place inside the Ark... The stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. See, the ark of the covenant was a meeting place with God. The ark was meant to represent God himself. This was fundamental to the children of Israel, to how they would worship, how they would come to the presence of God, how they would acknowledge the holiness and the purity and the righteousness of God. The ark was fundamental to all of that. They had carried this thing around with them for generations. But the problem was, in our text, they had come to the place where the physical ark itself had become an idol. They began to trust in the ark itself 
rather than the God of the ark. They were trusting the gold box to bring them victory. Listen to their strategy. Verse 3 again, it says, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Their confidence was in it, not in him. And the danger is that it's very easy for you and I to get like that as well. The whole, this is the whole issue with wearing the cross, the crucifix, is people begin to attach spiritual significance or some kind of power to the physical object itself. And it begins to enter into a place where it becomes idolatry. It begins to take a place of priority and emphasis in the heart that it should not take. In high school, I developed, me and several other guys on the team developed a superstition. Every game day, we would wear Adidas slides, I guess you call it. I just always call them flip-flops, but slides. And we had these like weird dress socks that we would wear with those slides, and then our team shorts, and then we had a, you know, a soccer shirt that had the whole schedule on it. We would have to wear that every game day. And the night before every game, we would go out to the soccer field and we would roam around with our eyes closed and just wait until we could feel the energy. We called it our stick spot. You know, we were going to take, yeah. We would just walk around until we felt, oh, we'd stop. Mark it right here. This is the spot. Not once did we ever actually do anything on that spot that we had marked. But we did it. Before every game, we'd go, we'd all kneel down to pray. Oh, stone sinners, man. We're all, we kneel down to pray, and the guys would go around. One would say the Our Father. Others, I don't even remember what they'd say, and they'd get to me, and I'd... I didn't know how to pray. But we had this superstition that somehow, if we did this, it would bring us victory. We would win. We didn't talk about the games that we lost. We just let that go. It doesn't have to be a physical object. Like the children of Israel, their confidence was on the box itself. But, you know, we can put our confidence in many other things as well. It displaced confidence. We can begin to trust in our own works. As long as I go to church, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I go on outreach, as long as I pay my tithe, God will bless me. And God will always give me victory. And in a sense, that's true. Because if you don't do those things, God won't bless you. Because God blesses obedience. That's true. But does God bless us because we deserve it? Does God bless us because we somehow earn it? If we can do all these things, if we do them all just right and we're faithful and we never miss, then God has to bless me. And that is a wrong mentality. Everything God does for us is by grace, which means you can't earn it. There's nothing you can do, no amount of outreaches you can go on, no amount of Bible study you can do that is going to somehow earn God's favor and God's blessing. To think that we can do something that will obligate God or that will indebt God to us is called being presumptuous. If you believe that God is obligated to do something for you because you did X, Y, and Z, that is called being presumptuous. That is presuming that because I've done this, God, you owe me. 
You're obligated, God. How many know God's not indebted to anyone? It's all by grace. And in our text, the children of Israel are being incredibly presumptuous here because they are assuming that if we bring the ark into battle, God is obligated to give us victory. Verse 5, when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. This is an excited group of people. This is like the people at the Garth Brooks concert when they heard that song, Colin Baton Rouge, yeah! And the earth shook. These people are excited because the ark is there. Now victory is guaranteed. Their confidence, their enthusiasm was inspired by the gold box, not by God himself. So what we are seeing in our text is a response that is rooted in emotion. The excitement, the zeal, the enthusiasm, all of that was attached to the box itself, the physical box, and it was not rooted in a confidence in the God of heaven. And once their emotions and their enthusiasm got stirred up, they were ready to go out and fight again. And this reminds me of of what I hate about a lot of modern Christian worship is it's all about emotion. It's all about the feeling. This is why you have a worship song that's like 12 minutes long. Because 11 minutes of it is just swaying in the presence of the Lord. Just soaking it in. sickening. It appeals to the flesh. It's all about feeling. It's all about, let's get the goosebumps. It's all about how it makes me feel and has nothing to do with glorifying the God of heaven. Thinking about God and focusing on God and exalting His name. It's emotion. The children of Israel are really stirred about the ark being in the camp. But the problem is, although they have the Ark of the Covenant, they don't have the God of the Ark with them. The Philistines have a little bit better insight than even God's own people. In verse 7, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. The Philistines looked at this, they heard the shake, or they felt the shaking, they heard the cries of the children of Israel. And they said, what is happening? And they realized the Ark of the Covenant is in the camp. But they understood the Ark is powerless. It's not the Ark, it's the God of the Ark. They said, God has come into the camp. And because of that, they concluded that they were doomed. This is the God that has destroyed the Egyptians and freed the children of Israel. This is the God of heaven. We are doomed. The conclusion that they come to is striking, though. In verse 9, it says, Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Even though they understood that they were doomed, if God was in the camp, 
If the God of the children of Israel was getting ready to fight for them, they understood we're toast. There's nothing we can do against him. But the amazing thing is that even though they were doomed, they said, let's fight anyway. Would to God we had churches filled with people like that. Even though they were doomed, even though they felt they had no chance against the God of Israel, they still said, let's fight anyway. The sad reality, though, in much of Christianity, though, is even though we are on the side of victory, even though we serve the God of the universe, the God that has defeated Satan, defeated death, defeated hell, so many Christians are afraid to fight. So many Christians are afraid to make a stand against sin, to make a stand against this world, to come against the powers of hell that are holding people in bondage. They're afraid to fight. The Philistines weren't afraid. And this reveals something about the devil. Even though ultimately he will lose in the end, he's still going to fight you. Even though Jesus Christ has won the victory for you and I, the devil doesn't just roll over. The devil's not just going to give up and let you go about your merry way. The devil is going to fight anyway. And you better be ready for it. I want to look last at trusting in the God of the ark. So in our text, in spite of the emotional frenzy and the excitement and, and all that was stirred up within the children of Israel by having the ark there, verse 10 says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The first time they came out and fought against the Philistines, 4,000 died. This time they're coming out to fight them again, but they have their master plan in place. They've got the ark of God with them. They are sure that they're going to win this time. Only this time it's seven and a half times worse. Instead of 4,000 dying, 30,000 die. And to top it all off, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, are killed in this battle. And the ark of God is taken. Stunning defeat. And again, we come to our question, why? Why would God let this happen? Why would God allow them to be defeated again? Why would God allow the ark to be taken? And in 1 Samuel 3, we have our answer. Verse 11 through 14, Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I am going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and the sins of his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. See, the problem with the children of Israel was spiritual. Again, if they would have asked God and inquired, God would have told them. But they didn't ask God. They had their own plan and they did not address the root of the problem, which was a spiritual problem of sin. 
It started with Eli, the high priest, and it flows down through his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These are the leaders of the children of Israel. These are the ones that are supposed to be setting the standard. The ones that are supposed to be looked up to, setting the pace. Follow me. If you follow me, I will lead you to God. That's their calling. But unfortunately, they failed miserably at this. And as the sins of these leaders of Israel are working in them, they begin to flow down to all the people that they are leading. And they were lost. In 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 1, it says the word of God was rare in those days. There was a famine of the word of God because the children of Israel had been led astray by the leaders themselves. Their hearts were turned aside to idolatry and uncleanness. And because of their sin and their persistent unwillingness to repent, in spite of the fact that God warned them over and over again, finally it came to the place where judgment had to fall. Judgment had to fall upon Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, and the entire nation of Israel. And this reveals a sobering truth. How many know leadership matters? Leadership is incredibly important. Eli was the high priest. His sons were designated as priests laboring within the tabernacle of God. They are supposed to be the ones that are helping the rest of Israel to be right with God, to have a relationship with God, to have their hearts right, and to walk in covenant with God. But because they failed so miserably at their job, that sin and their influence passed on to the rest of the nation of Israel. James 3.1 says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. James is highlighting this truth as well about the reality of leadership, the importance of leadership as he issues this warning. Those that are in positions of leadership will be judged more critically because you have influence. When God raises you up in ministry, God raises you up and puts you in a place where you have influence with people. There is a greater expectation because of that influence. And in the text that we just read, 1 Samuel 3.13, God is bringing judgment on Eli because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. Some commentators take this verse to be talking about Eli, how he didn't discipline his children growing up, kind of the idea of spare the rod, spoil the child. And I believe that certainly is part of the equation here. Likely the place that his children are at now where they are unclean, they are not honoring God, they are blaspheming God and living in blatant sin. I'm sure a lot of that traces back to Eli's unwillingness to discipline them as he raised them. But the real issue here has to do with his position as high priest. These are adult sons. These are grown men. They're married. They have their own families. It's not like Eli can spank them and set them right. But Eli, as the high priest, has a responsibility to judge sin and to make a stand against unrighteousness in the house of God. And this is where Eli failed. He would not judge his own children in the house of God. He knew that they were up to no good. 
He rebuked them. He didn't like what they were doing. He didn't like the reports he was hearing about their activities and their behavior. He didn't like it. Then he told them. But that's where it stopped. He refused to judge them and remove them from their place of leadership and ministry in the tabernacle. And Eli eventually reached the point where God said, okay, enough is enough. It's time to bring judgment. You're obviously not going to obey me. You're obviously not going to do what I'm telling you to do. It reached a point where judgment had to fall. And the ark was captured. In verse 11, it says, During this battle with the Philistines, the ark of God was captured by them. And what's funny to me, and one of my favorite portions of text, is as you read about what happens with the ark, after they take it, they put it in the temple of Dagon and God knocks their idol down. They set it back up. He knocks it down and knocks the head and the arms off it. I mean, God can take care of himself. God smites them with something wonderful called imrods. You can look that up. But they have the ark for seven months and they say, we got to get rid of this thing. This thing is killing us. Send it back to Israel. And eventually it ends up in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. 1 Samuel 7, 2. The ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. During that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed that the Lord had abandoned them. How many know God didn't abandon them? They abandoned God. This is what sin is. Sin is not God walking away from you. Sin is you walking away from God. God doesn't abandon people. People abandon God all the time. But it says that they felt like the Lord had abandoned them. And after 20 years, the children of Israel finally come to the place where they're ready to get right. They understand that they have rejected God. They understand that much of what they have endured was their own problem was because of their own sin and rejection of God himself. And in verse 3, 1 Samuel 7, 3 says, Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you are really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of the Ashtoreth, determined to obey only the Lord. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So they are at a place where they are finally ready to deal with their sin. They're finally ready to ask the question why and listen to God's answer and then respond to God's answer in, in obedience. They're willing to repent and they begin to cry out to God. They begin to plead for God to help them. They're no longer relying on any you know, trick, any strategy that they can come up with. They're crying out to the God of heaven saying, forgive us, we repent, help us, the Philistines are coming. And in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 7, it says, Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. There was no ark there that day. They weren't gathered around the golden box and, and cheering because the golden box was there. This time, God Himself was there. This time, the God of heaven thundered into that environment. He, I don't know what He did. I don't know if He just stomped or if He spoke. I don't know what He did. 
but he thundered that day. Last time, the thunder that the Philistines heard was the thunder of emotion and enthusiasm and excitement that was raised by the children of Israel themselves as they cheered the golden box. But this time, it was God himself that was thundering on their behalf. God was thundering from heaven. And as God thundered upon the Philistines, the Bible says that it shook them, that it threw them into panic and confusion, and it it so disoriented them that the children of Israel were able to wipe them out and win a great victory that day. What a different outcome. The Philistines are routed. The Philistines who had held them in oppression. Remember, they were already in oppression in our text in 1 Samuel 4. Now the ark had been in Kiriath-Jerim 20 years, so we're talking 20 plus years that they have been held in bondage, oppressed by these Philistines. And then finally, they realize, wow, we should probably repent. We should probably get our hearts right with God and invite God to help us. And as soon as they do, the outcome that day is very different. God gets involved, God overthrows the enemies, and God gives them a great victory that day. And Samuel is established as the prophet of God, as the judge, the leader of Israel, the man whom God would speak through and they would listen to. Thank God. Some insights from these lessons. First of all, we are at war. There is a very real enemy named Satan that hates you. You guys all look good, but I'll tell you, the devil hates you. The devil hates your guts because you remind him of God, and he hates God. And the devil is at work all the time trying to come up with strategies, trying to come up with ways to assault your life, to assault your marriage, to assault your family, your kids, your workplace. The devil will do anything he can come against you. But thank God, we serve a God that will give you victory. And the key is to understand that this is a spiritual war. It's not fought with flesh and blood, but it is waged in the spiritual realm. Second, don't rely on emotions to determine God's will for your life. I'm not preaching against emotion. We're emotional creatures. God made us that way. And emotions are a wonderful and a beautiful thing when they are in the right place. But if emotion is what drives your life, if emotion is what stirs you in your service to God, if that's all that you're serving God based on is when you feel good, when you feel excited and enthusiastic, yes, let's go for God. But when the feelings aren't there, what happens then? Don't serve God from emotions. Serve God from a choice to obey and honor God. Let the emotions follow. And finally, when we live in obedience to the will of God and rely upon Him, God gets involved supernaturally and God will do things that we cannot do. When the children of Israel raised an incredible shout from themselves, it did nothing to bring them victory. But when God thundered from heaven, it brought an incredible victory. God wants to get involved, and God can do things we could never do if we'll trust and obey Him. Let's bow our heads this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed, in reverence to God. Hallelujah. What a good God we serve.
Thank God. One of the greatest miracles in all of life is the miracle of salvation. When Jesus Christ is able to reach down into someone's heart, forgive them of their sin, and change them forever, it is the greatest miracle that we can experience this side of heaven. And if you've never experienced that miracle of salvation, you've never been born again, you've never made a decision to repent and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, but you would like to do that this morning, raise your hand and we'll pray with you. Anyone here? Or maybe you were saved, you've been born again before, but you're not living for God, you're backslidden. And you want to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ, you want to turn your life back over to Him. Raise your hand, we'll pray with you. Anyone here? Praise God. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And if we will seek God, if we will look for the mind of God and allow God to speak His plan into our lives instead of just saying, here's my plan, God, I want you to bless it. If we will seek God, find the mind of God, cooperate with Him and do what He is doing, God will move on your behalf and do things in your life that you could never do on your own. I want to open the altar this morning. If you want to come, pray, spend some time seeking God as we stand to our feet. Let's sing and worship God as well.